Hello and welcome to another episode of Naturally Adventurous. I'm Charlie Hesse and I'm joined as always by my good friend Ken Behrens. Howdy folks. So after our um, long saga with our, our special guest for the last three episodes, <laughs> we thought we'd um, just catch up a little bit, just the two of us. And there's been an idea we've been throwing around the last while is that we might sort of um, just try and interview each other and just dig a little bit deeper, let you guys get to know us a little better, um, ask a few of those um, far-reaching questions. So uh, today, Ken is going to interview me, and in the next episode, we'll, we'll flip it around. So I don't know what he's going to ask me. It's a complete surprise, very safely guarded secret, his questions. So uh, <laughs> we'll... Uh, this, we'll this see what is he's got uh, to throw at me. Oprah meets Roger Tory Peterson. It's oh, I tell you, the the Oprah, Harry and uh, Meghan interview is going to be nothing on on what we've got. Nothing, uh, absolutely, absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's going to set the presses on fire. Gossip websites, yep. yeah, it's going to be wild. But um, first of all, there's a little bit of news. Um, unfortunately, Ken got COVID. And it sounds like he's over the worst of it now. But um, yeah, we'd like to just hear a little bit about how that was for you, Ken. <laughs> um, you're a COVID survivor now. You can uh, wear the T-shirt. So uh, yeah, how did it uh, come about and, uh, and how was it? It's hard to say where we got it. It's, you know, it's kind of funny. We sort of stayed at home for a year and we're so careful. And then I, my theory is that it just reaches a certain saturation point where it's just like everywhere in the environment... And because right now, tons of people are coming down with it in Madagascar. It's all over the place. Are they? And I think what happened is that one of our kids got it at school, had probably had a very mild case, passed it to my wife. She got pretty sick. I resisted it for a week, which was definitely the most uh, hypochondriac week of my life. I was constantly thinking I was coming down with it. <laughs> and finally, in the end, I so did. you knew she had it. Yeah. Yeah. She, she lost taste right. and smell in addition to sort of flu-like symptoms, so it seemed pretty clear. We we've, haven't been tested, but it's uh, it's almost impossible to get tested here in Madagascar. Right. Sheesh. And so, yeah, I guess I, so, I've had it now for 12 days. I'm, I'm sort of on the 12th day since I um, had symptoms. And, yeah, it's, it's taken, compared to my normal trajectory after illness, it's certainly taken me a long time to feel okay felt absolutely dreadful for about two days right and then uh you know after about a week i really thought i'm fine i'm fine you know typically after a week of most illnesses i'm fine and so i did a, yeah. a moderate workout i figured you know just get get, <laughs> get going again like just reassure myself that i'm yeah. fine it did not You're Ken, your moderate workout is probably <laughs> a killer workout for, for most other people, so yeah. It was like two, three hundred push-ups and some crunches <laughs> and uh, a few squats. Just li lifted a bus, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's funny, I felt during the workout, I felt fine. But afterwards, I just uh, felt dreadful. And I had short of breath and just bad, like viscerally bad. And I really felt bad for like 24 hours after this workout. And so then I realized, whoa, I need to really take it easy. And so now it's it's been almost two weeks and I'm, I'm still just kind of have lingering weird malaise. Just don't feel right yet. Right. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly very fortunate that I had relatively extremely mild symptoms, but even my own brush with COVID was enough to kind of make me think about, wow, the people on ventilators and the people, so, you know, some of these people have had this long COVID that's gone on for a year or six months. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a serious thing. And you're, you know, you're a fit and healthy, healthy guy, you know, pretty young. Um, so just imagine, you know, people with uh, underlying conditions and older people. Yeah, it must be uh, quite a, quite a thing. Eh? I feel kind of shielded from the whole thing because, you know, Thailand's done such a good job in keeping it out that I really know nobody. You know, there's been less than 100 deaths in the whole of Thailand the whole time. You know, they, I think there's a few thousand cases, but they've been on top of it so so well that you know you, we really haven't been exposed to it at all totally different than if you'd been in the states or in the uk or or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. and i and I, I i feel kind of blase you know i mean everyone's like you know we've had this lo you know constant lockdowns you know we've we've been almost unaffected you know we were i think for a a few weeks last year they were they restricted you know which shops you could go to and you weren't allowed to travel out of provinces but uh, yeah it, it was only for a short time i mean we've been pretty much living normally you know the only inconvenience for me is not being able to work but um yeah anyway glad you're still around i might have had to find myself a, a new co-host <laughs> if, uh, if things things have gone a little worse <laughs> the charlie show yeah i wouldn't have uh just been la laughing at my own jokes and stuff like that. it wouldn't it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been quite the same thing well, I guess uh, we'll get into the interview then. We'll we'll start with these these hard hitting, penetrating questions. <laughs> so I've got a bunch of things written down. We'll see how many of these we get to, and uh, right. it's it's a it's a grab bag. It's all over the place. It's just supposed to be fun, and and it's you know some of these are supposed to be they're they're questions that I'm actually interested to know because I've known you quite a long time. Okay. We spent quite a bit of time together, oh, but yeah. then you realize oh, I actually don't know that about somebody. So. Be in okay. interesting for me to hear some of these answers. So the, uh -huh. our first question actually comes from one of our Patreons. Um, thanks, uh -huh. thanks to all of you folks who sponsor our show. Uh, greatly appreciated. And if other people want to join them, you can find a link to our Patreon site in the show description. But her question was, she was curious if you list other things other than birds, in particular things uh -huh. that are maybe a bit unusual um, she, cause she knows you're quite a rabid lister and her, her particular right. thing is, is sort of counting or listing roadkill on road trips. It, <laughs> and it, it seems like she's sort of done, does it almost like she can't stop. You know, it's like this, this subconscious urge to, to list. I've had, I've had various friends that just, uh, just the whole, it's not just that they're really into birds and they list birds. They're just the actual, you know, actual listing is just totally a compulsive thing for them and they would they would list the i had one friend who listed the birds he saw whilst he was urinating wow and he he said and and the same person i think he he kept a list of birds he saw on tv and this was quite a serious list there you know he would he'd be sat there you know the whole time with you know pen and paper ready to sort of note down any new species he saw <laughs> so yeah other other I, it's funny like uh, julian actually he sort of mentioned this sort of collecting mentality and, you know, collecting Pokemon cards or soccer cards. And I think it is kind of that listing mentality is kind of transferable. You know, it's not, doesn't just come from your, you know, interest in birds. 
I mean, I, I grew up collecting stamps and coins and things like that. And um, yeah, but I mean, birds were the only thing I really listed for a long time. And then a good friend of ours, Scott Watson, he got me into mammal listing. And I, I kind of hadn't done it for a long time. And when you start a list, it's actually quite a, a tricky thing to do because, you know, you can do a certain amount from memory, but then you've got to sort of, you know, either go to a book or journals or through thousands of photos, like trying to figure out what you've what you've seen. So it took me a long time to figure out my mammal list. And he, he, he really, he kind of riles people up into this sort of, uh, um, what would it be, a sort of jealousy he just likes to try and push people's buttons you know mentioning things that you haven't seen he's a bit like me in that respect. but <laughs> uh, yeah he, he, he got me he got me so riled up about uh, about about mammals that i i decided i must um get a mammal list and i must see more more mammals than him um so that that really is my only other list other than birds i mean for birds list bird lists i mainly keep a a world list but I do now sort of I'm mean, on eBird. You can look at any country in the world. and It'll tell you how many birds you have on your list. But I mean, I pay attention, I guess, to my sort of Thailand list now oh, a really? little bit. Hmm. Yeah, we're just um, just because we're stuck in Thailand, you know, and it's just a little something that yeah, a little milestone that you can shoot towards. You know, I think I'm just short of 700. I'm like 685 or something like that. I don't think I'd go and twitch something that I'd seen elsewhere, but I'll, I certainly do try and um seabirds in thailand um that maybe i've you know if, if it's not too much uh of a problem but as far as other things listing i i do intend to start listing rep reptiles and amphibians on a naturalist you can actually pull up a number of how many butterflies and i do intend to do that but i haven't sort of got around to it yet so i would say the only other thing i really list is mammals now what about mullets you have a bit of a mullet obsession. <laughs> yeah, we some of friends of mine. We just it's this sort of um, it's this sort of parody mentality. You know the mullet where you've got sort of short hair and like like long long at the back. We, I guess we kind of always thought it looked a little bit ridiculous, but then we kind of made fun of it by parodying it and saying that we loved it but in the end you do that long enough and you end up really liking <laughs> it so um, i i did used to have a photo collection of these mullets and i would uh, i would i would go around trying to photograph people with this particular haircut um, and sometimes and sometimes it would because you always want to get it from the side you know and getting photographs from the side is a little tricky so i would sometimes just point something and then they would sort of look to where I was pointing, and then I'd sort of take a quick photo <laughs> from the side to get the the, the profile. But uh, yeah, I guess I, I did I did collect mullet photos for a while. But um, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Well, this question may be like uh, picking a favorite child, but for people who don't know, <laughs> Charlie speaks quite a few languages. What do you speak? Like three languages quite fluently, and then another five to ten at a sort of moderate level of fluency yeah so i mean obviously i'm a native english speaker but i i would say i, I speak fluent japanese and pretty fluent spanish um and then i can sort of get by and then you know i my, my my mandarin is coming on i can have a conversation a decent conversation 
I chat with my Mandarin, my Chinese teacher for like an hour in Chinese. So, I mean, I can obviously hold a, a decent conversation. Uh, my Thai is coming on, but that's maybe a sort of intermediate. I can get by in French. I can get by in Portuguese. I can understand Afrikaans pretty well. So, yeah, there's quite a few in there, sort of, you know, three pretty fluently. And then, yeah, like you say, another, another four or so uh, at a sort of intermediate or basic conversation level. Yeah, that's impressive. That's the question. <laughs> um, yeah, the question is, which is your favorite among all those languages that you've dabbled in or uh, deep dived in? Yeah, it's almost certainly Japanese. I, I, I I've yeah, I've just got a, I've had a total love affair with the, with the Japanese language and the communication, and it, and it goes to a point where if I meet a Japanese person and they try to speak to me in English, I get quite upset about it. I feel like they're sort of robbing me of my opportunity to sort of uh, speak the language that I love, you know. But I, but I also really enjoy speaking um, Thai. Um, just like coming out with some because it's kind of a fun language. I, I love Spanish as well. I just love chatting away in Spanish. But I, I think you to really enjoy a language, you've got to feel that you're at a sort of communicable level. I yeah, I'm still waiting to. You know, it's a work in progress, as it were. But yeah, yeah, the answer to the question is certainly Japanese, and that's one of the reasons I love te guiding the the Japan tours. It just gives me a wonderful opportunity to just chat away every day in Japanese and show off. <laughs> you know, I find uh, speaking foreign languages, it's almost like acting, and you tend to take on just some of the sort of cultural behaviors of the the group Dude. of people whose language you're speaking. I remember yeah. seeing you at some point guiding a bunch of Japanese somewhere or other. I don't remember where it was, but uh -huh. I had a, a group of uh, of English speakers, and you were guiding Japanese. And and watching you, you, you know, you were behaving like a Japanese person. You were doing all these like <laughs> little bows, and you sort of had your your hands on your belly yeah. and and in kind of bowing. And uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. You just take on all this stuff. And, you know, of course, being able to do that is a mark of really kind of knowing a language and having observed well. Um, when I That's apparently, yeah. I'm told when I speak French, I start to act like a, like a Frenchman. Like That's the facial expressions and the shrugs and the arms. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's funny. It's a funny thing. I tell you, it's, um, yeah, and you, you feel like you have a different personality. You, you feel you like do. you're a different person. Totally. Yeah. And you, and it's almost like having an alter ego or like a you know a split personality. And I I even had a friend, and they listened to me speaking Japanese and Spanish, and they said, "This was a Japanese person that said this." And they said when when I when I spoke English, I sounded like you know really cool. I, they, they really liked the way that I spoke English. But when I spoke Japanese, I spoke like a sort of country bumpkin because <laughs> <laughs> I, I I learned my Japanese in this really rural, well, it's just kind of back in the sticks kind of place. And I, I, I used to at least um, speak with a quite a strong accent, but all my mannerisms, I think were all from that place as well. So I speak a very specific type of Japanese. And then I think my, my Spanish is kind of Ecuadorian. Sometimes I kind of fall into a, a Peruvian Spanish as well, which is kind of pretty guttural and informal and stuff. And I certainly um, do kind of speak a little bit like that but yeah my friend my japanese friend said when i spoke spanish i sounded like um i was a con man <laughs> i sounded like really untrustworthy and and whatever so yeah it's it, it is very funny how you do like you say you take on these these parts of uh 
of the culture or you know the place that you learn that particular language I'm told by lots of uh, Latinos that I speak with a strong Mexican accent when I speak Spanish yeah, and I, yeah. I learned in Mexico <laughs> so it's natural and I'm okay with that yeah, but yeah if I live I'm sure like if I lived somewhere long enough I would uh, pick I it up change the accent a bit and, and you also use local words and stuff uh, yeah, language is endlessly fascinating. We could talk about that the whole interview. I, th I think we've been talking for a while about doing a whole podcast on language, you know, as yep, it relates we should. to travel and stuff. But I we think should. I think we'll definitely yeah do that. So my next question is also about language, and I'm I've always found that learning bird vocalizations with a high degree of fluency is almost like learning a language. Yeah, I'm curious if you think having learned other languages and spent a lot of your life studying languages has also made you more adept at learning bird vocalizations? I I don't think so. I don't think having learned languages has helped me learn bird vocalizations, but I think the thing that makes me good at learning languages also makes me good at remembering bird calls. I think it's a I think it's an ability. I think it's maybe a, maybe it's a musical memory or something like that. But um, I think and 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 also I'm, I'm a very good mimic. You know, even if I don't speak a language well, I'll be able to do quite a good accent just from from mimicking that thing. And I think that's quite a that's quite a skill uh, or you know an, an ability that that some people have and some people don't. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love I love birding by ear. I think both of us are pretty good birding by ear, remembering bird calls. And it's so it's wonderful. So there's all different types of birders, you know. Some people are more, much more visual and looking for stuff. I, I was thinking a, a lot about Julian and his uh, his last episodes and the way that he went into such detail and studying about different plumages. And I've had people like that on my tours saying, you know, what about you know what, what color primaries? Or, you know, what color coverts does this bird have? And I said, look, this bird is this bird because it sounds like this bird and lives in this place. You know, I'm not I'm not really studying plumage differences where i don't need to you know and often I, I i stick more to vocal cues to auditory cues than than visual ones i think yeah i do the same um and habitat as you said range and habitat and, habitat. and vocalizations yeah, are, are my i only start looking at minutia of plumage if those things have failed if, me if that's what you need to do yep yeah and I think that's one of the things, you know, they, they were talking about the British people going into real detail at identifying. But when you're doing vagrants, the, these birds are out of context. You know, they're, they're not where they're supposed to be. You know, so you can't do it by, um, and maybe they're not, they won't be singing. So, you know, those things that we normally look for, especially in the tropics, are not things that people who are very interested in vagrants are going to be looking for um, at, in, you know, more northern places. Yeah. So, but yeah, I I love I love habitats and I love I love bird calls. It, it's one of my favorite things to do is to walk through a forest just picking out bird calls um and listening for little rustles and you know, it's just it's just magical. It's my favorite thing. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 almost like an elevated existence in which you are living in a world that other people don't even know is there. It's hard to describe. It's almost like a like a higher form mm -hmm. of consciousness or something. And yeah. uh yeah, most people miss so much. What is the least favorite place you've been in the world? <laughs> Whew, that's a very good question. You know, I I think it will be Venezuela. 
Really? And Venezuela is an absolutely beautiful country with amazing wildlife, some wonderful people. Um, but I, I had a real hard time there. And I spent a month in Venezuela. I was on my own. And there was a very, this was, I, how long ago would this be now? 15 years or, or more ago. It was during, it was during the, the years of Chavez. And Chavez did a very good job in turning the everyday person, again, not only against the US and the UK, but against people from those countries. So I, I felt coming from Britain that I, was, I felt very unwelcome in the country. And I've spoken to other people that have visited and they didn't feel that at all. But, you know, people that have been on a tour, you know, with a driver, staying in nice places, you know, they, they were a little bit more removed where I was sort of traveling around hitchhiking, uh, traveling on, on public transport. And I, I just felt a very negative vibe from the people. Um, but it wasn't all the people, you know, I'd go, you know, you'd go around and people would be pretty unfriendly and they say, oh, where are you from? England. And they say, oh, England is helping America, you know, the, the big enemy. And I'm like, well, it's not me, you know. I'm just, a, I'm just a person, you know. You know, I, I like to connect with people just on a, you know, person-to-person -person basis, and not feel like I've got to stick up for my government or whatever, which who I might not even support myself, you know. So I had a hard time, but then, you know, I go a few days with people being unfriendly to me, and then all of a sudden I would meet somebody who would be incredibly generous and incredibly friendly to me, and so I, it wasn't. I couldn't generalize to the whole population, but that general lack of of a feeling of welcome when I was there, it really kind of made me feel bad and it kind of drew me a little bit towards depression. And I think it's a shame and I because it's such a, an amazing country. It's having such a hard time and I'd love to go back one day and feel more welcome and continue exploring places that I haven't been because it's an amazing place. But from there, I went overland into Brazil and as soon as I crossed over the border, it was it was like chalk and cheese. The people were incredibly friendly, incredibly helpful. I would ask directions and people wouldn't not only give me directions, they would say, oh, no, come with me, I'll, I'll take you. And they, they would just sort of drop what they were doing and, and, and just guide you to where you needed to be. And it was just, it was amazing. It was just an absolute revelation to me. But um, yeah, so I would say Venezuela. So if you were not a pro birding guide and birder, what do you think you would have done with your life if, if, <laughs> if by chance you just hadn't gotten into birding? It's not the easiest thing to get into. You know, it's, there's a lot of young birders that think, oh, you know, they're quite jealous of us and our lifestyle or whatever. I mean, it's, we, it's, it seems like a, a perfect job for a young birder, but it's not particularly easy all the time. You know, it's, I often think, Pro guiding is, you know, it's maybe 20 or at most 30% birding and the rest is is looking after people, keeping people happy, often fielding, you know, complaints and solving problems and stuff like that. So, you know, if people think they're going to go into it and just be birding the whole time and not have to deal with any of these things, then they're, they're, they're misled. But on balance, I, I love it and it is the perfect job for me. But if I was here, <laughs> I've got this client... And he said to me, Charlie, if you weren't a guide, you'd probably be homeless. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was our little friend. That was our little friend from Canada. So um, I don't know, to be honest. I, I did. 
in the past, I I had thoughts about getting into conservation because I love you know I, I love the idea of helping save species because it's like one of my big passions is you know is to stop species from going extinct and um you know in the past i even you know worked in captive breeding programs i did um i did field work um on on endangered species i took i volunteered on conservation programs but you know in the end i think a lot of conservation is more about people than about the birds themselves and i'm and I'm, I'm not such a people person so yeah that never really panned out and, and getting into guiding and just experiencing the lifestyle it was very difficult to to change that i also looked i also considered academia you know i've got a master's degree i actually applied for a phd i somebody told me years ago that you should only do a phd if you're really interested in what you're studying don't just do it for the sake of it and i had i up i applied for this phd on bird vocalizations in peru and i thought you know this is just the perfect thing but yeah i didn't get accepted in the end and uh and then I started guiding, and then in the end, I, I thought, you know, I'd actually be prefer to be in the field every day than being stuck for months in a in a library or you know in front of a screen. Yep. So in a lab, um, yeah, they, they were two things that I actually considered that are still related to birds. I mean, it, who knows what, what I I could have been a an English teacher or a civil servant or anything and just done birding as a hobby. But um, luckily, I feel very privileged to have ended up doing what i do normally um without covid um and and have this chance to to get to all these amazing places in the world you know i mean there's two there's two ways you can get around these places and do so much traveling one is you know to make money in another way and the other is to sort of is to find a way that uh, that you can do it for free or even get paid doing it so we both have a pretty amazing lifestyle as you said and it, it does have its downside and i think it's often over glamorized by people who haven't actually experienced it. Uh, so, what what do you yeah. think are the biggest things you have sacrificed for this lifestyle? Ooh, that's a very good question. I, I mean, I think I think the biggest thing for me has been time with my son. Mm. That has been a real, you know, you know, when you're in a a marriage, whatever, you know, you you know, you miss each other, but like actually having a having a child that you're kind of missing watching grow up it's like quite you know even when i think about it it puts a lump in my throat you know it's they're, they're times that you can never replace so i definitely feel like i've sacrificed some of that um i know i know you feel the same as well i mean we've had discussions about this in the past but um you know, I, I think the time that you do get at home, say you're only at home half the time, the time you do get at home is more concentrated and you can spend a lot of more quality time. I mean, if I was a, a businessman, whatever, working all day and only seeing my kids for half an hour at night and maybe a, a day on the weekend, whatever, then, you know, I might have the same amount of time with my kids as that. But, you know, for me, it's, you know, I'll be away for a month and then I'll be back for a whole month and I can see them all day long, you know. So it's just... But it, that certainly is a, a tough part. And, and also, you know, guiding, it's not the most lucrative profession in the world. So, I mean, I, I've i never really thought about missing out on the chance to make lots of money and be a wealthy person and, and, until COVID. And then, because I always, I always felt that I had a very secure profession. I'm good at what I do. I've got, 
language skills and other skills that that make me um, quite a valuable asset for a company for tropical birding and I always felt like I had pretty good job security uh, and that I'd always have a job if I needed it guiding work but um, yeah I mean I never considered it, it's really thrown thrown a curveball at me and and that sort of um, feeling of uh, financial security and always having guided guided work is now really I've got a bit of anxiety in my chest when I think about it you know am I going to rely totally on this guiding profession for my financial security for the rest of my life you know it's quite it's quite a thing eh? yeah one of the things that I think about sometimes is this job really requires robustness and good health and you know what yeah. if you had something that compromised that it would be very very hard to continue that job and uh you uh -huh. know most guides don't have any sort of uh, insurance that's going to protect them in that case, or let alone yeah. health insurance or yeah. anything like that. Um, so you are a bit precarious. And often, you know, I never really had a plan B. You know, maybe I could, you know, lose a limb or lose an eye or something. You not be able to guide anymore, and then you know, what would I? What would I do? You know, I've kind of, I, I kind of feel like I've thrown all my eggs in one basket, and and I've just totally committed to this to this one profession that I that I love and you know maybe maybe I do need to have a plan B I don't know <laughs> <laughs> you probably should yeah but, but I mean that's that's been the great thing about that's been the silver lining to COVID is that we've had to um, find other things to do and, and build other skills that we you know didn't have time to work on before so yep. I do feel that I have done that a little bit but uh, I wouldn't say that I've I've got a whole you know other career that I'd be able to do, you know, if I wasn't guiding. Part of uh, what's tough about this lifestyle is that you, you get kind of addicted to travel and you, you want to continue traveling on your own, mm. even as you're guiding. And if doing that is, yeah. is not cheap. <laughs> so in, in terms of yeah. supporting your lifestyle, it's not only your sort of home expenses, but there's also your continued desire to travel to new places on your own. And, and being able to justify that to your family, you know, I, yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I always do that. I think, oh, you know, I'll say to my wife, you know, okay, I'm going to go and guide here for three weeks. And, and I really do need to spend that one extra week just uh, checking out this one other location because it's a place that I may be able to guide in the future and, you know, make money. And, and, you know, you're going to try and justify it. I mean, I... I really landed on my feet once, which was, I think I had two Brazil tours. And for whatever reason, I think they were like two weeks and two weeks. And because of the bookings and whatever, I had a week in between. So I had no choice but to stay <laughs> in Brazil for that one week and go birding on my own and, you know, see a whole bunch of lifers. But, you know, I actually had a decent, I was like, you know, I, I would have loved to have come back during that time. But, you know, I'm stuck in Brazil. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm just going to nip up to Cristalino and get, you know, 30 lifers you know so uh shame <laughs> but yeah it is but that, that's one of the things that you know we've managed to do is you know you, you go somewhere to guide a tour and you, you pay for it and the flights are paid to get there and then you're already there so if you can just tag on a week and go somewhere else you haven't been you know for with you know minimal expense then that's that's been sort of my 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 kind of playbook you know that i've uh what I've tried to do is just do a little bit of extra birding in the place that I've already been paid to go to, you know, so. So what, what's the goal in this? 
long term? I mean, is your goal to <laughs> assemble the, the biggest possible list of birds or to have been to the largest number of countries or what's what's the end game? The end game. Yeah, that's certainly a, that's that's one of the few questions that I had thought about asking you. So help <laughs> you next week. The end game. I think both those things are part of it. I mean, I do really want to keep building my life list. It's not it's not a matter of oh, I want to get to eight thousand. I want to see all the birds. I I do kind of want to see all the birds in the world, and and it's not just about a number getting to seven thousand or eight thousand. It's like being bothered at, by looking at a a bird field guide and having that page with a gap on it that where there's a bird that you haven't seen yet, you know, and that and that gap bothers me, and that's just my personality, you know. And that's why you have, you know, you see that last bird on the page and, you know, that, that's a bingo bird. You call bingo because you've, um, you've seen all the birds on the page, you know, and then finally, it, it's like having a jigsaw. For, that's, that's the way I, I, I see it is I've done this thousand piece jigsaw and I've got like, you know, a hundred pieces left and, and, and just looking at that jigsaw undone on the table with those pieces still not put in place. It just bothers me. I can't, I'm never going to rest until that jigsaw is finished. So uh, I don't know if that makes any sense to you. I know it's not the the way you see things. Um, no, but I do have this kind of mentality that I do. Uh, that it's a it's a work in progress, and and I really want to finish it. But I do I do love traveling. I love seeing the world. There's so many places that I want to see, not just to tick off all the birds, but to to see the place, to see all the natural wonders, the, the scenery, all the other, you know, mammals that are there, even experience part of the culture. I mean, I, I'm not really a, what I would call a culture vulture, but I mean, there are certain things about cultures that do do it for me. I, this is another thing that might become a podcast in the future with us is, you know, chatting about tours that we've done where the culture has been really interesting. But I mean, just off the top of my head, going to Bhutan culturally was just absolutely amazing. And going to Ethiopia was amazing. Um, yeah, being able to travel to see scenery, to see culture, to see the wildlife and being in the position to, to do that. And also for me, of course, languages, you know, to be able to use my languages while I travel. So I, I just see what I'm doing. The end game is just, to, is just to continue what I'm doing as long as I can, I think. Well, that segues well into another of my questions, <laughs> which is, let's say... Due to health and or financial reasons, you cannot travel anymore. You have enough money to settle in one place and never travel again. Where would you settle? You know, I, I think you kind of asked me a question a little bit similar to this, and I, and I evaded. I'd give a very long answer, which, uh, <laughs> which, was, which you deemed to be a, a non-answer. So in, in danger of repeating myself. Yeah, never being able to travel. I, I it would have to be a place where where I like to live. I mean, not necessarily having lots of birds that I hadn't seen yet or whatever, but I think I do love Asia, as you know. I think it would almost certainly be in Asia. And it would have to be a place where I enjoyed living. And and I think for me it also has to be a place where I you don't have these day-to-day -day hassles. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't live in, you know, the Middle East or North Africa where people, you know, you've got to haggle every day for everyday things, you know, it would just drive me nuts, you know, 
having to haggle for food and, and whatever. So and and also having that thing where people are staring at you the whole time. You feel like you've got two noses, you know. Um, so being in a place where people um, welcome you and a pleasant and friendly, but don't charge you extra money or or, or whatever. I think is a very important thing that everyday day pleasant day-to-day -day life of having people friendly and nice and and it being a safe place and and to be honest with you there's all if all those are boxes I don't think there's anywhere that ticks as many as Thailand for me yeah that's so what I was I thinking travel I yeah I I think I wouldn't find a place that I would be happier living if if somebody did put a gun to my head or for for whatever reason I couldn't travel anymore, I think I'd be quite happy in Thailand. I certainly in that region, I think that would be my choice as well. Um, very diverse in terms of birds and quite a bit of migration, quite a bit of vagrancy of rare birds showing up. Um, yeah, cool, nice mammals it's so and it's butterflies. So dynamic, and, eh? Yeah, there's so there's so much there's so much new stuff like every year. I I might have mentioned before, but like. I, I, I guided, I don't know, 10 or 12 Thailand tours. And even by the last tour, I still got a lifer. And you, you, there's, there's almost nowhere in the world, you know, maybe maybe some New Guinea or whatever, but there's almost nowhere in the world that you could guide that many tours and still be getting lifers every tour. Yeah. And it's such a place with so many difficult birds, so many interesting places, and it's just constantly evolving and new things are being found. So, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating place and just constantly kind of keeps your attention and interest so you have invested quite a bit of effort in getting felix into birding and you've been <laughs> yeah. su quite successful from the sounds of it he's quite Ooh. a rabid birder now now yep. who, who knows what's going to happen over the next decade um if felix sort of slowly or maybe dramatically and precipitously stopped being interested in birding would that be a major disappointment for you or would you be okay with it? This is a very good question. And it's something I do ask myself. I love this at the moment. We're, we're in the sort of golden era that he just loves it. And I, I'm loving going out with him and we just, we're having a, we're having a ball, but you know, teenage years are teenage years. Kids get embarrassed of their parents. You know, I remember feeling embarrassed. You know, I was maybe 14 and, you know, maybe went out with my, mother shopping or whatever and just that intense feeling of embarrassment and you know and you sort of you sort of snap out of it after you you know reach adulthood you know might get 17 18 and you sort of chill out a little bit but maybe you don't you know when you're a teenager you don't want to go hanging out with your dad so that's a, a you know a possibility and you know at i took a, a pretty much a break from birding when i was at university as well you know I, I was just going out having fun with my friends you know doing other stuff and I kind of got back into it afterwards. That was still a birder, you know, very occasionally I would go out, but my social group was certainly not not birders. So that's all also, you know, as Felix sort of, you know, goes out partying or, you know, has girlfriends and stuff, you know, maybe also he doesn't want to travel with his friend. Maybe he'll take a break and get back into it or maybe he'll take a break and not get back into it. But um, that's something I'm going to have to live with. But um, it is what it is. I mean, there's, there's not much I can do about it. He's into it now, so I'm just kind of... All I can do is enjoy it at this time. Some people, some birders don't even get this far with their kids, you know. They don't even get That's their right. kids involved at, at a young age. So I feel very happy that I've managed to do it and uh, and hopefully keep him interested 
um, for as long as we can. You know, he, he, he actually says, Dad, I really want to see a hummingbird. And I says, well, just just keep birding. Don't worry. I'll show you a hummingbird. The only thing that's going to stop you from seeing a hummingbird is by you quitting birding. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> just keep at it, son. So you and I both like birds quite a bit. Yeah. But among the sort of 10, 11,000 birds in the world, is there one group that is your least favorite? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I've always, I've always thought it was gulls. And there's a certain type of person that likes gulls, and they, they tend to be very sort of detail-oriented, and they're very into hybrids and wing feathers and, you know, counting, you know, your p9 and p10 and you know i i had this one I, I had this one client and he was an expert on gulls and and he said you know his perfect day was to go and with his video camera and just video a herring gull and just wait for it to stretch its wings and just see you know how much hybridization it had and what and, and that for me you know i'd i'd prefer to i wouldn't say i'd you know I'd, I'd, I'd slip my wrist, but I mean, I, I would certainly, you know, prefer to bang my head against a wall pretty hard than than do that. But then again, you know, I can't put that to all gulls because there's some pretty gorgeous gulls as well. I mean, you look at ivory yep. gull and you look at swallowtail gull or, you know, there's some fascinating gulls. But behavior-wise, behavior they're not the most exciting group. And also another bird, group of birds that people are often very get very into are seabirds, the tube noses, you know, all the the sheer waters and petrels and things like that. But I think that is probably more because of my inclination towards uh, seasickness. You know, <laughs> I, it's difficult to be passionate about a group of birds that you, you just makes you feel nauseous or, you know, you, you feel nauseous when you're looking at. So it's kind of, there's like a association there, but uh, yeah, certainly one of those gulls are tube noses. When you look at the course of your life, is there one like huge inflection point that you can remember like biggest sort of turning point in your life when you made a decision or whatever that sort of set your course from there? Ooh, that's a good question. It's not something I've really thought about before. I, you know what it might be is the start of my international travel. Yeah. So not, not even, because we were talking about before, you know, that I jumped from being a sort of local birder to a to a world birder, but that was that was due to my love of traveling and my love of backpacking. So, after my first year at university, actually, there's a guy you you actually met him in Tanzania, my buddy Ned. Yeah. Um, and we did after we became great friends, and after my first year at university, this American friend of mine, Ned, he he was going to do a, a a long road trip. He had a car and he was just going to drive around the states and he invited me along and you know I, I saved up some money and this wasn't a birding trip or anything you know it was just just buddies you know going around drinking beer and just just whatever you know he said there. uh he said it was a baseball See, trip you were like going to as many stadiums yeah. as you possibly could right he yeah my buddy ned he's um a big uh, cubs fan just like you and uh yeah we we watched we were watching you know, baseball games every day, you know, so, <laughs> but it was just, uh, just getting outside. I think that was my first time outside Europe. I did a lot of traveling with my family around Europe, France, Germany, Holland, whatever. When I was growing up every year, we went a little foreign holiday, but just getting out of Europe to North America, we went down to Mexico 
and you know saw a bit of you know developing world and diff people living in a different way and we were just you know driving around sleeping in the car and just traveling so cheaply and he he really taught me how to travel and and i never stopped he, you know the following year i went to india and then following that i went to all around asia and then you know i went to africa and and that was that was definitely an inflection point which really made me a a rabid traveler and, and backpacker and then i sort of combined that with my interest in nature and that's that's how i became a an international birder so i would i would definitely say that that trip with my buddy ned was a big inflection point in my life yeah that makes sense given what i know of you that that probably would be the biggest one and, and yeah. to have made that leap like julian mentioned from just being sort of a british birder to a global traveler and birder is is a major one that very very few people make without the sort of intermediate stage so maybe maybe you would have got there eventually but you know after having yeah. chased, chased a whole bunch of i don't know citrine wagtails or something yeah <laughs> um so you're a pro birding guide that's your profession as, as it is mine I, along with a mix of other things Certainly, uh, during this pandemic, yep. we've had to change <laughs> the sources of our livelihood. But yep. what's Podcasting. what's the hardest thing about guiding uh, bird tours? I would say keeping people happy. I mean, that can be in a variety of ways, and and often I meet some wonderful people, and and they're often very worldly people, very well educated people, and I, and I I. I you learn a lot, you know, you, you hang out with doctors and lawyers and, you know, international business people and, and, you know, university professors that whole time and you spend, you know, 16 hours a day with them every day for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, you, you end up learning so much, eh? Um, it's a wonderful, yep. wonderfully uh, educational experience and you never stop learning. But there's always one person, eh? There's, al there's always one person on a tour that makes it a little bit difficult. Um, and maybe it's somebody that just complains a lot or somebody that's never happy. And, you know, as a guide, all you want to do is is enable people to enjoy their, their trip and give them a very rewarding experience. You know, if people go by, that can be showing them all the birds that they wanted to see or explaining about the culture or just having a good time, you know, having a, having a laugh with them. But in the end, all you want to do, if somebody's had fun, on a trip and enjoyed the trip that's that's your mark of success it doesn't yep, you can miss every absolutely. single target bird you were you were looking for it doesn't matter if those people go home happy then you you've you've done something right and when people are unhappy some it, it's not always your fault and sometimes there's things beyond your control you know that are going wrong and sometimes those things can just you know they can snowball and just you get these absolutely disastrous tours and these just chains of bad luck and whatever. But, you know, if, if there's things that you can do, you, you know, you do them. But sometimes there's not. And then there's always people who are who are not happy about something, not happy about the hotel, not happy about other people on the tour or whatever. And, you know, and not being able to do anything about that unhappiness. If if I can address their concerns or their complaints and and they can they can say okay well thank you very much it's great you know you've solved the problem you've you've made a success of that tour but if if for whatever reason they are still unhappy 
and and unhappy with you especially then that makes you feel really bad and and it kind of makes you feel not so good at your job which is the, yeah. the thing i probably like least on the tour i yep. guess you'd probably agree with some of that oh yeah um <laughs> very often probably on every tour someone will ask me are we having a successful tour and they think I'm going to evaluate that based on, okay, we've seen uh, 68% of the possible birds or, you know, we've seen 82% yeah. of the endemics or something like that. And I, I always just ask them, are you enjoying yourself? And if they say yes, then I say, we're having a successful tour. Yeah. Um, it's, uh-huh. They always think it's going to be judged by something external. And as you say, the, that the judge of a, or the, uh, the measure by which you decide whether you've had a successful tour is did everybody enjoy themselves and it's very hard when one person doesn't when you feel like you've sort of succeeded with seven people but you haven't with one person now sometimes you do your best and it's just impossible some you know it's there are certain parameters within which you operate on a birding tour and some people come with with expectations that are just so far outside of that there's no way you're going to sort of bring them in but it's a bad feeling it and you feel yeah like you failed in a way but you know, even I feel every every time everything that goes wrong on a tour, you've really got to make a mental note as a guide as how you would have addressed that. You know, if something has gone wrong, how would I? What should I have done? And then you've got to keep that in your mind and remember it for the next time something similar happens. And it, it's kind of funny. It it kind of gives you a. It makes you amazing at predicting what things can go wrong. <laughs> And, yep. and it kind of affects your personality. Um, it, it almost makes you feel clairvoyant in in a way. You can you kind of you can see things coming. You're thinking like, this is going to happen. Then this person's going to say this, and then this is going to happen. And it's just oh, and and it, it kind of makes you a little bit negative. I've chatted with Keith about this as well, and he said that's that's a skill. That's a that's a very valuable skill as a guide is being able to predict what can go wrong. But when you bring that to everyday life, you know I'm constantly reminding my wife at every single possible thing that could go wrong with whatever plan she's come up with whatever you know and it's and it it comes over as a very negative thing to do <laughs> i think i know the answer to this one because we've spent quite a bit of time together um but i'm okay. curious this this one actually came from my kids do you have any strange phobias <laughs> oh phobias that's a very good question. That's another thing I've never really thought about much. I'm a little... The things that freak me out are... I can get a little bit claustrophobic. So, being like like caving, you know, it's like, you know, going through little gaps and getting stuck somewhere is just a horrendous thought for me. and And drowning as well are pretty horrendous thoughts. So, those... They're not really phobias, but they're, they're fears of mine. I don't think I've got any particular phobias. Certainly not in the animal world. I mean, I, I'm pretty much fascinated by. Uh, there's no, there's no like, any form of animal or plant that grosses me out. I don't think. If you know the answer, I think you probably know the answer better than me. What, what, what were you thinking is the answer for me? I wasn't aware of any. So. Uh... Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't. I certainly don't have any. I don't have many. Phobia. For years, my biggest phobia was, or my, my my biggest fear was, just being stuck in a job 
that I didn't want to do or stuck in a place where I didn't want to live, you know, but I, I certainly feel um, a sense of relief having found a, a job that I love and, a, and, a, and I've got a family that I love and I live in a place that I love. So I'm in, I, I feel like I'm in a good place, you know, but as far as phobias go, I wouldn't say that I've got any particular ones. I suppose a phobia would be a fear that's vastly it's out of proportion fear, yeah. to the, the yeah. threat posed by a given thing. Like we have a friend yeah. who I won't mention who's terrified of spiders. <laughs> and every time he checks into a hotel room, he does a complete spider check of the whole room, uh, like <laughs> under the toilet and in the cabinets and just to make sure there's no spiders. And so that's, right. that's clearly like out of proportion to the threat posed by spiders. Yeah, I, I think... You know, the way, especially when it comes to wildlife, I mean, the way to, I mean, I, I know some people it's just innate and maybe there's nothing they can do or maybe it's something that's happened to them at a young age. But I, I think most irrational fears can be, you can sort of combat them just by just by learning about something. You know, if, you, if you're terrified of snakes, just learn about snakes. You know, yeah, yeah. what they are and what they aren't going to do, you know, they're, they're not going to chase after you or whatever you know you look keep look where your feet are or you know you, you avoid certain places or whatever you know it's the chances are so you know you, you you've got such a you've got a much better chance of being hit by a bus than than being bitten by a, a snake you know it's uh it's just not a rational um fear really yeah i think we both have a lifestyle such that we have faced a lot of things that a lot of other people fear and realize that most of those things are not as scary as they seem. One uh -huh. of my biggest fears in life has just been kind of being stuck somewhere yeah. in, a, in a bad uh, lifestyle, sort of cut uh -huh. off from travel or from nature, you know, some kind of like uh, soul-destroying office job in, in uh, Ontario or but something. You can see, you can see how people get into it. You know, I, I've got friends that have done a well-paid job and they they said you know this is just a means to an end you know i'm just going to do this for a few years and then i'm going to go traveling or gonna and and they don't you know they they buy themselves a nice car and they buy themselves a tv and they you know they make their existence seem better and they meet somebody and they have kids and then you know they're they're in it but you know people find you know enjoyment in all types of life maybe people don't enjoy the job they do so much but you know you Maybe you've got great friends. Maybe you've got a wonderful family. Maybe you like going out at the weekend, whatever. So you, you don't, you don't have to do what you're passionate about for your job to have a, to enjoy your life, you know. But um, I certainly feel privileged that I do. Yeah, totally agree. It's uh, it mm. may actually be an overrated idea. This idea that you have to sort of find employment in the thing you're most passionate about it might sound funny coming from you and I who have managed to do this. <laughs> yeah we've done it but you don't have to yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you're a, a vegetarian and i guess you you started very young and then you you stopped being a vegetarian for a bit and then went back to it i'm curious are there circumstances under which you would eat meat at this point in life if any <laughs> that's that's a good question yeah i didn't see that one coming that's a very good question um yeah, there are circumstances. I'm not. I'm not going to put my. I'm not going to put myself in danger. I'm not going to starve myself. This is a. This is a decision I've made because I have the luxury of being able to make that decision. Yep. You know, I, I always have the option of having healthy, delicious vegetarian food. It's a very luxurious position to be in. Many, most people 
in the world don't have that leeway to decide, you know, that they're going to make, you know, I'm not going to eat this anymore. You know, most people are stuck with what's available. So I do see myself privileged in that way. Now, to think of some hypothetical examples of when, you know, you know what? You remember your story about going traveling with Linzu and you, you were eating those termites? Yep. Yeah, I mean, something like that. I mean, I'm not. I'm not causing the death of those things. Those things are, they're all, you know, falling into the fry pan anyway. You know, when you see these thousands of termites coming out, they're all lying dead in the morning anyway, you know, outside your door. So, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not saving anything by not eating them. So I, I always, I always think, you know, why, why wouldn't I ask myself, why wouldn't I eat an, an insect in this situation, whatever. So I would be, yeah, I, I always feel quite close to just grabbing one and having a munch. <laughs> but, um, I think if I was ever really hungry or if that's all there was, I think I would probably eat meat. Or certainly certainly something like insects or whatever. But um I don't I, I never I never get up on my high horse and say nobody should eat meat. This is a, my own personal decision. And this is when it kind of annoys me when people say, Well, why don't you? You know, it's um you should be doing this and I said, Look, it's my decision, you've got your decision, just you know. I'm quite happy for anyone else to do what they do, but you know, I I just see my vegetarianism is because I I just see it as unnecessary. You know, there's plenty of healthy vegetarian food. I don't necessarily agree with the commercially produced meat and stuff like that, and I don't agree with you know hunting wild animals that are not sustain that can't be sustainably harvested, whatever. So it's just a decision that I make. But yeah, if I was really hungry, if I was trapped somewhere. And that's all there was. Then, then I would most certainly eat meat. So, uh, as a vegetarian, do you see a sort of moral difference between eating different kinds of animals, like an insect versus a fish, versus a, a slaughterhouse chicken? Like, if you were forced to eat meat, you would find it less objectionable to eat the insect. Yeah, I I think it's all got to do with. You know, the effect that producing that meat has had or, you know, if it's like I mentioned before, if it's a wild animal that's not sustainably harvested, which, you know, I think it's difficult to sustainably hunt because there's just so many people, you know, I mean, how are you going to stop doing that? I mean, I I know there are, say, like game farms in, in Africa where where wild animals are sustainably harvested because, you know, the owners have to. It's a business. So. I wouldn't, yeah, I would never eat uh, unsustainably harvested wild animals. I, it would include, well, I wouldn't want to, I should say. And that would include fish stocks as well. Because, I mean, most fish stocks are overfished, which I see as a big a big problem. I, I think, I think mo- the thing that I'm most drawn to are insects because they, it's it's really the protein of the future. I think, you know, in 20 years, a lot of people are going to be eating insect burgers. You know, it's it's like a very easily produced form of protein. Yeah, I think one of the problems with commercially produced meat is how wasteful it is. They say, you know, for a, a pound of beef, you know, you, you can produce 20 pounds of, of uh, vegetable protein or whatever. You know, they, they you can, uh, many, many more times, you know, because you've got to produce all that water and it gives off all the methane. So, I mean, ecologically, eating... Meat, meat is uh, is not great, especially commercially produced meat. So, if it was sustainably harvested fish or insects, 
I would consider it. Yeah, I'm I'm, espe- I'm especially kind of curious about the whole insect thing. I think I would be fairly close to to eating insects. And then also, you know, producing um, tissue on Petri dishes. That's a sort of interesting ethical dilemma. You know, would you mm-hmm. eat a steak if it was produced in a Petri dish? You know, it hasn't killed anything and it hasn't farted out, you know, thousands of uh, cubic liters of, of methane. You know, it's... it's but uh, I think more now it's just the price of producing that type of thing and getting the right texture and stuff. But I, I wouldn't be able to think of any reasons why I shouldn't have some artificially produced animal tissue. Yeah, a follow-up question, I guess, which occurs to me is, yeah. is it the morality of taking the life of another animal, particularly an animal that's maybe warm-blooded, has children, or is it more the environmental ethics that drive your vegetarianism or maybe a combination i I would i would say more environmental i mean animals kill other animals you know that's that's just part of life you know i'm not i don't have a issue i don't have an issue with that so um killing animals to eat is not really a, a thing but i mean if if you've got a choice, you know, you've got this delicious piece of food here that is from vegetables or you've got this delicious piece from, uh, here that involved the killing of an animal, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that's, I don't necessarily like this any more than I do that one. So, you know, it's just an, an extra little additional thing. So I'm not against killing, but, you know, if I've got a choice between killing something and not killing something, I'd rather not kill something, you know. So it has a little bit of that aspect as well. Last question. Let's say you have a, a terminal illness and you have a couple months to live, but you're going to be healthy enough to take one last trip. Where are you going to go? You can go anywhere for a okay. month. I think I'd do the, um, I think I'd do the mountain gorillas. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's my number one bucket list thing. And added to that, you've got a whole bunch of very, very cool endemic birds. There's Albertine rift endemics. And I think, you know, you might only have a day with the with the gorillas, but I think, you know, if I could only just explore one one more place in the world, I think I'd love to just explore those those mountains. I guess you'd be able to tell me whether that would be a, a good thing to do or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's what was it, number three or so on my lifetime top lifetime mammals, so I would certainly endorse that yeah. choice. You can see chimps as well, which um is pretty yeah. pretty amazing in its own right. But I, I love I love mountains. I love just moist, green environments, and I love hiking and I love exerting myself. And yeah, so it's it ticks a lot of boxes. So I think I would probably I'd probably go and do that. Well, thanks for uh, answering the questions, Charlie. It was uh, it was fun. Uh, I learned a little yep. bit more about you, and uh, I'm sure our <laughs> listeners did too. I think it would be appropriate to wrap up this episode with a representative of your least favorite birds your favorite group of birds which is gulls i'm gonna play a uh, european herring gull recording from zeno canto and the recordist is antero lindholm and uh, thanks for listening and we will catch you folks next week